This is a real-world cryptographer's podcast, where we capture the history of the field via stories. Today, I'm very happy to have uh, Yuval Bishai on the show. Yuval is a professor in computer science at uh, Technion. He works on multi-party computation, zero-knowledge proofs, uh, secret sharing, studies various assumptions using cryptographic uh, schemes, and other topics. Yuval, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about your approach to research. And in particular, one thing that I noticed that uh, a lot of your papers have uh, multiple co-authors. Do you prefer to work with others on your problems? I think, first of all, it's, uh, it's somewhat part of the culture of, of uh, you know, of the, you know, the crypto community. Uh, I, I might be... Maybe my average number of co-authors is, is higher than, than usual, but I think that single author papers are not very common uh, in the crypto community or in general in theoretical computer science. Um, to me, I, I, you know, I care a lot about the social aspects of research. Uh, research has to be fun. There is an issue of uh, finding you know, we're always overcommitted, so working with other people is a, is a means of, um, you know, having some kind of a commitment and um, having some uh, external, uh, you know, entity that can... Uh, Social pressure. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and it goes both ways, right? So, so I think that... Uh, you know, the, if you look at the COVID situation right now, it seems like people are writing more papers. So at least with respect to quantitative measure, productivity goes up. But at least at least for those who do not have young kids, my kids are now uh, grown up, so uh, I have time uh, to work. But if I reflect, so, you know, by quantitative measures, um, now uh, my level of productivity did not go down. This is a bit of a diversion, but it's related to your question. But... but um, but now when I, when I think of, hey, you know, where did this work originate from? Where did this work originate from? The answer is almost always that it can be traced back to a specific trip and a specific interaction with some other person. So to me, interacting with other people is a good, uh, both it's, it's a more fun way of doing work and also it serves as an inspiration. You know, for instance, this dialogue or interview uh, m- makes me um, think, I think, m- more uh, openly than I would if I were to sit on my own and try to write things down. So, so, so social interaction, uh, you know, uh, despite the uh, Zoom and uh, the fact that we, we, we got uh, used to the current situation, um, both physical interaction but also virtual interaction is is very helpful for me to do research so how much time do you usually spend uh on a problem or on a paper oh i think uh, there is a huge uh, huge variance Uh, so so i I should say that uh, one aspect of being more senior or older uh, less uh, you know (laughs) Uh, politically ra- correct way of uh, describing my current situation uh, is that you you delegate more tasks to junior authors. So, in some sense, uh, it's up to me how how much time I personally spend on on a research paper. But I usually really enjoy 
doing all aspects of research, including uh, writing uh, technical stuff. Uh, I, you know, for better or worse, I'm involved in so many papers that it's very difficult to, to you know, to, to get uh, down to the low level details of every, each and every paper, you know, I co-author. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I do. I do work very hard and spend quite a lot of time. It's hard to on on almost every paper. It's really hard for me to quantify because uh, again, ju- both because of the collaborative effort and because of the huge variance. Mm-hmm. So, how would you define a successful a successful career of of an academic cryptographer? First of all, I think that uh, it's in our minds, right? So if we feel successful, then uh, that's that's the biggest success. And uh, and, and it's not always uh, that strongly correlated with the perception of the outside world, right? So you can be objectively successful and feel like a failure in the other way around. So that's important. I wouldn't say uh, right. it's the most important thing. But I, I would say that uh, success uh, is measured, uh, and as someone who writes many papers, I would say that the quality is much more important than quantity. So, you know, uh, I, I really care about, um, or I have higher respect for people who publish uh, a small number of high quality papers uh, as opposed to a, a big number of average papers. Uh, unfortunately, not all universities uh, think this way, and you still see uh, quantitative metrics uh, being uh, routinely used uh, in hiring and promotion decisions. Uh, I, th- I think that the better the university is, the more confident they are about being able to evaluate quality and uh, the less weight they put to quantitative uh, metrics. Number of publications, but overall, I think that uh, people should aspire, um, you know, to have uh, long-term contributions, uh, things that are not, uh, you know, that there is an opportunistic research where somebody comes up with a new idea and then, uh, you know, uh, people jump on it and sometimes uh, publish incremental works that don't have long-term impact. I think that. You know, thinking out of the box uh, is very important. Uh, trying to open new directions, um, trying to strip down um, noise, you know, or syntactic sugar and get to the essence of problems. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of small description complexity. It's one of my guidelines in picking research problems, something that can be explained, uh, you know, Phrasing the question very succinctly is is important for me. And not only phrasing the question succinctly, but also you need it to be decoded in the right way, right? So it's very easy to take a a very nuanced uh, problem and describe it in a succinct way, but then it will not be decoded in the right way. So I think that in general, you know, that's, I guess, these are all philosophical principles about science, not nothing specific to cryptography, but In general, small description complexity is impossible and also robustness to changes. So if your problem is super sensitive to the details or interpretation or modeling choices, then typically, you know, it's not as fundamental or um, 
important as problems that capture, you know, if, if you look at the question of fully homomorphic encryption, it's very easy to explain in a couple of sentences in a way that is not sensitive to any variations. Uh, now, now, yeah, now, now of course you have um, many different uh, kinds of high quality research in cryptography. There is research that strives to base uh, standard primitives on the minimal assumptions, right? So right now there is exciting progress in the area of obfuscation of trying to base it on on simple and, and uh, well-studied uh, so-called standard assumptions. Um, so that's one type of research. And another type of research uh, is just finding new ways of doing things regardless of assumptions, right? So some new ways that are not broken. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all examples of good uh, types of research that uh, I like. Got it. So besides uh, research, do you think uh, teaching plays an important role in a career of an academic? Definitely. I think that teaching uh, is, uh, I, I would say, a major excuse for uh, being in the university environment as opposed to, say, a research lab environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, teaching and supervising students. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy teaching. I usually teach uh, both uh, advanced crypto classes and uh, compulsory theory of computation classes. Uh, I enjoy it very much. I try, in my teaching, I try to um, give a lot of intuition, a lot of connections with applications, with what's happening today giving students an uh, idea about the type of research problems that are being studied today. So basically, you know, when you teach a, a class on, a, say, foundations of cryptography, then typically you get stuck in the 80s or 90s just because there's so much material to cover. But then I try fast-forwarding to current research and telling people, you know, hey, this is what the research community is doing today. And... I feel in general, again, that we're extremely fortunate. This is related also to teaching, uh, being in the field of cryptography where um, it, it really feels like uh, some kind of a scripted field that, uh, you know, doing the impossible and having so many conceptually intriguing ideas and paradoxes, it really feels like magic. And this is also fun to teach. This is, by the way, what uh, drew me into uh, the area, taking a class and being intrigued by uh, making the possible impossible, making the possible impossible and turning lemon into lemonade, you know, all these paradoxes. So I know that you recently gave a talk at uh, PKC 2020 and the uh, subject line of that talk was how low can we go? I tried to find the talk online, unfortunately I couldn't, but I have uh, read the abstract from the talk. Um, I was wondering if you can summarize a little bit uh, what was the talk about um, to the audience. Uh, thanks. So, so first of all, I'm, I'm a, a bit disappointed that it's not easy to find online. However, I think that if you go to the PKC uh, conference website uh, and uh, look at the program, then uh, there should be a clickable uh, YouTube uh, link. Uh, for some reason, it's not easily accessible. But the talk is out there, and in fact, I think, uh, you know, it's a fun talk, and it summarizes 
uh, pretty well. One of uh, actually the last line of research I'm involved in that you mentioned uh, in, in your summary of my research. So essentially, th th this uh, talk uh, represents uh, both relatively old work, uh, the crypto and NC0 line of work, which uh, takes um, you know, the parallel complexity of, of crypto to an extreme, looks at very simple implementations of crypto primitives in which each bit of the output uh, depends on, say, four or three bits of the input. So this was considered to be impossible, or at least uh, something that uh, seemed uh, unlikely. And, and in a joint work with Benny Applebaum and Eyal Kushilevitz, we managed to show uh, that under standard cryptographic assumptions, essentially the same assumptions we use to, to establish our feasibility results, we can actually get the stronger version of most feasibility results, which enjoy this kind of very low parallel complexity. So this was, uh, I think, the first, uh, my first uh, line of works uh, on minimizing the complexity of cryptography. And subsequently, I was involved uh, in other lines of work, uh, for instance, um, in a joint work with Kushilevitz, Ostrovsky, and Sahai. Uh, we looked at the computational overhead. So instead of looking at the parallel time, it takes, say, to encrypt or compute a one-way function. We look at the sequential time, how many, you know, the cleanest measure for sequential time uh, is, uh, let's say, Boolean circuit size. So you consider uh, atomic uh, and or not operations with bounded fan in, and now you look at the asymptotic cost. And the dream goal would be uh, to do everything with constant multiplicative overhead. So you can think of a task like a zero-knowledge proof or secure computation. So there is a circuit that specifies the function that we want to compute. And now two parties want to securely compute the same function. Namely, they both want to learn the output of the function without revealing to each other anything else. A classical example is Yao's millionaire problem where two millionaires want to know who has more money. Okay, so if you think of, uh, say, let's take uh, the millionaire's problem for an example, and let's say that every party has an n-bit input, and they want to know representing the wealth, the number, and they want to know uh, just one bit of information, which number is bigger than classical methods uh, due to Yao or Goldrich uh, Mikali and Wigderson. They, um, if you look at the complexity, how much uh, you know, time it takes to run sequentially, or what's the size of a circuit required to implement a party, then uh, you had an overhead which was some polynomial in a security parameter. So for every atomic gate of the circuit computing the function, uh, the greater than function in my example, you had to exhaust a certain amount of uh, computation that depends on your level of security. Mm -hmm. and the main question we asked in this work is whether uh, you could do it uh, with a constant amortized overhead. I know you've done a lot of work on secure multi-party computation. Can you perhaps summarize what is the problem of secure multi-party computation and what is the setting? And then we want to talk a little bit about some of the results in that as well. Okay, great. I'm glad uh, you asked about it. This is one of my favorite topics. And, and in fact, secure multi-party computation, I already uh, described a special case of it uh, before. Uh, but secure multi-party computation, when considered um, in a, 
you know, in, in its ultimate level of generality, can capture almost anything in cryptography. So almost anything that can be expressed as allowing the good guys to do X while preventing the bad guys from achieving Y, that's basically the essence of cryptography. And this essence can be captured in, a, in the ultimate level of generality by this notion of secure computation. So, so if, if, if you're interested in very general notions, look at, at works, uh, you know, by people like uh, Ran Canetti uh, that uh, formalize very general notions of secure computation that can capture almost anything in cryptography. But typically, when people refer to secure multi-party computation, they think about it in a more narrow sense of securely evaluating a function. So, what does this mean? Uh, let me repeat the previous example in a, in a slightly more general way. So you have two or more parties. Each of the parties has a local input XI, which is considered sensitive information that it wants to keep secret. And now there is some joint distributed computation specified by function F that all parties want to carry out on their inputs. And they want to reveal either the same output to everyone, or you can specify a different output for every party. You can make this computation randomized, for instance, dealing poker hands. This is one of the classical examples where two parties have no inputs, but there is a randomized process that generates a deck of, you know, that generates a hand for every party. So it's some kind of correlated randomness. These are all instances of what we call functionalities that we may want to compute securely. What does it mean to compute a functionality securely? It means that the parties just exchange messages like you do when you want to compute it without security. And in the end of this interaction, each party should learn its designated output. But the extra requirement is that even if a party or a colluding set of parties are corrupted, Right, or, or you know, you could, you could consider either the parties themselves are malicious and try to cheat, or there is some external hacker that uh, you know th that can that get access to to the internals of, of the, the machines of some of the parties. Now, the parties, you know, suppose that there is an external uh, hacker that hacks into your machine, then your data is in the hands of, of the hacker, right? There's little you can do about it, or maybe things you can do about it are outside of scope of secure multi-party computation. So from the point of view of secure multi-party computation, if a party is corrupted, then this external entity called an adversary knows the inputs of this party, and the goal is to prevent this entity from learning the inputs of other parties. Maybe just to give a listener another example, uh, Threshold, let's say, signatures or threshold uh, encryption are examples of kind of multi-party computation protocols, right? Where perhaps a set of users share uh, uh, shares of a cryptographic key, and they either want to sign a message collectively or decrypt a message collectively without revealing um, the shares to each other. Is that right? right. So, that, so that, that's an excellent example, but this type of research usually employs a more specialized techniques. Uh, what I refer to is more of a general problem of secure multi-party computation uh, that is not tied to any specific uh, distributed implementation of a crypto primitive. But, but of course, uh, yes, a threshold... It's not tied to a specific function that you want to compute and distribute it, and it's general enough that you can apply any function on top of this 
abstractly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so can you then briefly summarize for us like what is the current state of the art of MPC in terms of both assumptions, perhaps some of the overheads that one could experience when using these uh, constructions, and what are some of the uh, unsolved problems in the space? Okay, so, so first of all, I should start with a disclaimer that I'm um, mainly working on the theory of secure computation, and uh, while some of my work has relevance to, uh, you know, to real-world uh, secure computation, this is, I'm, I'm less of an expert, uh, so I can just give you, uh, you, you know, my, my, um, my take based on my, my uh, partial exposure. So, yeah. let's start with assumptions. So a necessary and sufficient uh, assumption uh, for secure computation is the existence of a so-called oblivious transfer protocol, uh, originally due to uh, Rabin. Uh, an oblivious transfer can be formulated in, in several different ways, but it's essentially like, uh, I think of it as, as or at least uh, the original version of Rabin is like, uh, um, Poor postal services. So I think that you know, in in uh, Northern America, maybe you do not uh, get to experience this a lot. But uh, you know, wh where I'm talking from, you know, you send uh, you send some package and you don't know whether it will be delivered. Normally, that's viewed as a bad thing, but in the cryptographic context, that's actually a good thing, right? So one version of oblivious transfer. It's like the coding theoretic notion of an erasure channel. You send some message. And with some probability, let's say one half, it's delivered. And as a sender, you don't know whether it's delivered or not. And as a receiver, when it's not delivered, you have no way of figuring out the content. Okay, so you can think of it as an information theoretic uh, primitive. And then you can base general secure computation on this primitive. And this is a seminal result of Killian from the late 1980s. Uh, and that's also necessary because it's a special case of secure computation. But typically when people talk about oblivious transfer as a computational assumption, they don't assume that there is some physical implementation, but they assume that there is an interactive protocol between two parties that results in this type of functionality and security. Okay, so with probability one half the message is delivered, uh, the sender cannot tell if it's computationally bounded, the sender cannot tell whether the, the message was delivered, and with pro, you know, when it's not delivered, the receiver, when it's computationally bounded, cannot tell what the message was. Uh, the other flavors of oblivious transfer, usually what is more convenient to use is, is a so-called one out of two oblivious transfer, where the sender has two messages and the receiver can select one of them and only one of them. Right, and I imagine it becomes more and more um, relevant some of these techniques as we talk about the big data, right? And some of the applications you mentioned earlier, like machine learning, where the amount of data that has to be exchanged or the circuits that we're computing are becoming larger and larger. Exactly, so, so scaling secure computation to big computations is definitely a big challenge. Uh, now, I, I should say that, uh, let me, let me uh, transition to a different uh, and, and quite exciting line of work about secure computation. Uh, so, in these general circuit-based solutions that I mentioned before, when I referred to communication per gate, uh, you always have this uh, phenomenon which is somehow seems unnatural, the amount of communication in the secure computation protocol 
grows with the amount of computation of the function that you want to compute. So to give an example, let's say that, uh, you know, both of us have uh, 128 bits of inputs. Let's say that these are shares of an AES key, mm -hmm. right? So, so uh, right, and this is an actual use case for secure computation doing a distributed AES, right? So we have shares of an AES key. None, none of us knows the key. The key is the XOR over two short inputs. But then we want to evaluate, um, you know, AES uh, on this uh, distributed key. Okay, it's also a simple example for a threshold crypto type uh, problem. And uh, the traditional methods, the classical methods of secure computation uh, would say, okay, write uh, this AES as a circuit. It will have, I know, 5,000 gates. I mean, actually XOR gates are typically for free in the context of secure computation. Uh, so I would say AES, I always forget this number. Maybe you, you can uh, correct me, but around 5,000 gates or a few thousand nonlinear gates. Was, uh, like 8,000, but... Okay, yeah, so same ballpark. And then uh, you need to spend some non-trivial amount of communication. In the best case scenario, uh, maybe four bits uh, per gate. And this is not what you expect, right? Ideally, you expect if we don't have security requirement, we can just exchange uh, our inputs, right? Uh, I send you my 128 bits, you compute the output and give it to me. So there's a big gap between the circuit size that represents our computation and the input size. And this was a big question uh, for many years. And I guess that um, this question motivated the notion. The question was, can we close the gap between uh, communication complexity and the input size or uh, computational complexity? So classical, all classical methods for secure computation involve communication that uh, grew proportionally to the circuit size as opposed to just uh, you know, the input size. Mm -hmm. And this motivated this uh, holy grail of fully homomorphic encryption, uh, which was uh, an intriguing open question, you know, leading back to my dates, my days as a student, it seemed like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I guess, uh, Sergey, you, you grew into it, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what stage of your career this got you, the 2009 gentry breakthrough. I, I got into the field because there was some excitement that I finally started to see around fully homomorphic encryption, so. Yeah, so, so I would say that in my days, it seemed like uh, now this is a bit of historical gossip, right, which I guess is appropriate. It used to be the case that every once in a while, people would propose, uh, here's a new candidate for fully homomorphic encryption, and then you had uh, Don Coppersmith, uh, you know, a famous, uh, you know, cryptographer sitting on the program committee and finding uh, how to break the proposal. And, and it seemed like, uh, uh, in retrospect, maybe it's hard to justify why we had this feeling, but it seemed like really an elusive goal and uh, quite a few candidate constructions were broken. And all this changed in 2009 uh, with Gentry's first proposal uh, for fully homomorphic encryption. And then we had um, you know, construction under uh, nice assumptions like learning with error by Berkersky and Ritin Tanafsan. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 in recent years we've had a lot of progress on uh, you know making fully homomorphic encryption more practical and there are even companies and, and a lot of effort both in industry and academia in making FHE more practical so FHE is a very good tool for improving the com communication complexity of secure multi-party computation the downside is one, the main downside is that the computational cost is very heavy. It's still uh, orders of magnitude better than, than, you know, the starting point of Gentry's result. Then it seemed like total science fiction. And today you can maybe process 100 gates per second. Mm -hmm. But 100 gates per second is still quite slow. I should say that for simple computations, right, that involve, say, that have low algebraic degree, you can do much, much better. Certainly, if you want to compute linear functions, uh, which are useful for many real-life applications. So for certain tasks, FHE uh, is good. It's certainly good at minimizing communication, uh, but uh, it is uh, still uh, quite slow. And also in terms of communication, it only gets better when you're processing big amounts of data. So you have a pretty big uh, startup cost. Uh, so if you want to process uh, a small input uh, using FHE, you're still better off in terms of communication using uh, classical methods. Are there problems that uh, one can solve with FHE that uh, cannot be solved with multi-party computation or the other way around? Uh, and I guess referring a little more to some of the practical problems that you've seen in the real world with these primitives. Right, so first of all, uh, I should say that, uh, so maybe I'm not, I'm not um, so FHE has a bunch of applications. Uh, you know, in, in theory, for instance, it can be used for delegating computation. So even if you just care about um, saving the computation as opposed to only communication, FHE uh, is useful. Uh, uh, now, uh, if, if you look at um, the popular conception of FHE as, you know, I send you my encrypted input and you send me my encrypted output, this is something that we could do even before FHE using uh, so-called garbled circuits. This was uh, Andrew Yao's original idea for solving the millionaire's problem. Uh, the issue is that it's compact in the sense that the encrypted output, even though there is just one bit of output, the, the size of the encrypted output is comparable to the size of the circuit uh, that you want to compute. So from a feasibility perspective, if you don't care about the uh, size, so, so I'm saying that there was a bit of a misconception initially where people thought that, uh, hey, you know, th this simplistic view of FHG of just sending an encrypted input and receiving back an encrypted output, we could also do it by previous methods. So this is why, you know, a feasibility results that uh, build on FHG can often uh, rely on simpler machinery. However, in recent years, certainly the techniques used for FHE have evolved into so-called multilinear maps. And now we have uh, different approaches for uh, realizing uh, another holy grail in cryptography, uh, namely cryptographic obfuscation, uh, using uh, the kind of techniques that were used to build FHE. And even some tweaks on FHE can nowadays be used to realize uh, this uh, much more powerful notion of obfuscation, right? So obfuscation is taking 
some general compiler that uh, takes a code and or circuit and makes it unintelligible while keeping the same functionality. So Fuscation is really a super powerful primitive with many real-world applications. Uh, it's stronger than FHE, but nowadays we use FHE um, or FHE-inspired techniques to build it. And uh, I, I should say that we can also use FHE to bootstrap it. So that's a kind of a cool uh, and possibly futuristic application of FHE mm -hmm. and also SNARKs, right, which are efficient, uh, very efficient proof systems. So while a lot of the results that you mentioned, they seem to improve the uh, theoretical understanding of these primitives and theoretical efficiency, like without them, there's probably not a lot of hope of getting these primitives to be practical. Would you, would you say that's fair to say, or do you think there's still other directions that what one, one would potentially take? Right, so let, let me mention, uh, so, so I think that in many cases, uh, we make progress on efficiency by relaxing our goals. So the crypto community is, is super pragmatic, both in terms of assumptions and in terms of conclusions. So we're willing to, to settle uh, sometimes for things that are a little bit less. So a good example for, for that in the context of FHE is a relatively recent line of work with uh, Boylan Gilboa on a, a primitive called homomorphic secret sharing. Homomorphic secret sharing can be thought of as a distributed version of FHE. So instead of having a single ciphertext that, you know, I'm a client, I want say that I want uh, to learn uh, news feeds that match a certain criterion or a certain secret set of criteria. So the FHE approach would be, let me encrypt my search criteria, you know, give it to, you know, the news server, and then whenever the news server processes some feeds, uh, some news feeds, it sends me, let's say, an encrypted output, let's say just a flag, a bit saying, or, or a pointer to a news feed that matches my, my search. So you could do it with FHE, it would be very slow, and even communication will not be that great. Uh, if all I care is a small bit or pointer, then an FHE ciphertext encrypting that uh, will be long. And the HSS approach says, okay, now split your secret, in this case, search criteria between two servers. So it's like classical notion of secret sharing, let's say two out of two secret sharing, but one that supports a homomorphic uh, evaluation. So now I, I'm a client, I pick two, uh, you know, um, two news servers that I trust not to collude. I split my input between them such that each of them separately learns nothing about my input in the same sense of standard encryption. Now each of them can perform local computation on uh, each share of my input. And there are two cool things. First of all, we can do many things just with symmetric cryptography. So here, uh, unlike FHE, which uh, kind of necessitates public key cryptography, here we could lose lightweight symmetric cryptography and another point is that now, uh, because there is no single centralized ciphertext, you can have, say, every server send just one bit. I extra these two bits and I learn whether there is or there is no match. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this machinery of homomorphic secret sharing is also very useful to do something else, which is a li another line of work uh, that I mentioned in the passing. It's related to this notion of silent oblivious transfer, pseudo-random correlation generation. Uh, that's uh, a way of having a compressed short seeds between two parties that can be locally expanded to give useful correlations that can then enable very fast secure computation. 
This is the line of work, uh, you know, with Boyle, um, Gilboa, Kuto, uh, uh, Lisa Colin, Peter Scholl, uh, which um, we already have a sequence of works that uh, use this homomorphic sequence sharing machinery or lightweight symmetric crypto machinery combined with learning parity with noise, which you can think of some version of learning with errors, but uh, one that turns out to be better for this kind of applications. And now we can generate all kinds of secret sources of correlated randomness that would otherwise take a lot of resources and a lot of communication to generate. So this, this approach uh, that we refer to as secure computation with silent preprocessing says, let's first do, hey, we, we know that uh, tomorrow we might, might want to do some big secure computation or threshold encryption or threshold signature. Today, let's do a short handshake, like a small amount of interaction that results in each of us storing a, a short seed. And now, uh, if we know that, uh, hey, in five minutes we want to do secure computation, we can each locally expand our seeds. It's kind of like a string cipher, but instead of generating an identical source of, this, of identical randomness, here we're generating sources of correlated randomness that enable fast secure computation. Mm -hmm. So that's another line of work that is related to this uh, relaxation of FHE called the homomorphic secret sharing. And, and this is one, one potential avenue for uh, getting very fast uh, protocols for secure computation. So I guess maybe moving on to um, a couple more general questions. So one of them is uh, what is your, the favorite paper that you have co-authored? Can you tell a little bit about uh, the history behind it? What motivated you to think about the problem? It's a bit tricky. I will not, uh, you know, uh, let, let me, don't put me on the spot of picking a single favorite. I think, uh, you know, I have many favorite papers. So let me, let me go for a recent paper that also won, uh, you know, a best paper report. Best paper award at uh, Crypto 2016, which has an interesting story behind it. Mm -hmm. So this is a paper where, um, a, with with uh, Boylan Gilboa, where we uh, had the construction of homomorphic secret sharing for uh, not for general circuits, but for this notion of branching programs. So you can think of it as log space computations, which can still do a lot. And unlike all the constructions of homomorphic cryptography before that, that had to use the learning with errors assumption, here we could use the classical uh, decisional Diffie-Hellman assumption. So basically, if you have a group, by the same type of group you can have, you can use an elliptic curve group or a you know, multiplicative group, uh, you know, Z star P, uh, you can still do homomorphic cryptography, but in this distributed setting where I split my input between two servers and now each server can do local computation, send me back one bit and I XOR these two bits and I learn the function F of my input. And this we can do only from groups without lattices uh, or anything else. So this was the result. Uh, I think it caught us by a big surprise and the story behind it was that we had an earlier work which um, basically studied much simpler types of homomorphic computations. Essentially, this, this is uh, called the, uh, you know, function secret sharing and distributed point functions. 
So basically you can do an equality check. So I can secret share my n-bit input between two servers and now the two servers hold, you know, my input is X. They hold an input Y and they can locally compute on the shares of X and get a single bit such that the XOR of the two bits is one if and only if X is equal to Y. So this is, this is a simple kind of homomorphic secret sharing that we knew how to build from one-way functions. And then we asked, what other kind of things you can do um, you know, from one-way functions or from assumptions that are no, no, not known to imply fully homomorphic encryption. And then we had, this is a paper from Eurocrypt 2015, we had a barrier that says, hey, we cannot really expect to get a powerful forms of homomorphic secret sharing from assumptions that do not imply public key crypto, so, uh, homomorphic, uh, sorry, homomorphic encryption. So, so we cannot really expect things like uh, the result we got later because, and we viewed it as a barrier because this would have powerful, this would give us something like FHG. This, this is good enough to get secure two-party computation where we break the circuit size barrier for a, a big class of circuits. So we kind of viewed it as an indication, and this was an actual result of, of the paper that says, hey, if you have this notion of a function secret sharing or homomorphic secret sharing for powerful um, classes of computations, then it gives you in the two-party setting. So now there are no two external servers, it's just you and me. We can get the same kind or almost the same kind of result we can get from FHE. And we viewed it as an indication that there is no hope to do it under other assumptions. And then uh, somehow uh, it turned out that we had a very, and this is a usual uh, pattern in re research in general, that you get very close to a deadline uh, wanting to do one kind of result. So we had so we were thinking of what is, so, so something that we could do from, um, from, from this uh, lightweight machinery is uh, to solve this problem of private information retrieval, okay, or do this, this follows from these equality checks. And we were thinking, okay, what's the simplest, more general thing that we can do uh, than private standard private information retrieval? Let's try to solve the problem of private information retrieval with wildcards, okay? This is known as partial match, okay? So instead of uh, asking, you know, does your database contain this keyword, and uh, now uh, the richer class of queries uh, contains, um, you know, uh, you can have wildcards, right? So uh, it's the first bit. I can search for an item that has, uh, you know, uh, zeros and ones in some positions and wildcards in other positions. And we had a pretty complicated solution that used DDH for this specific problem. And we were already starting to write the paper and we were thinking, okay, this is not good enough for crypto. Let's try to, to add some other results we had and so on. And then, you know, maybe three days before the deadline, we realized that the technique that was used to solve this very specialized task of searching with partial match could in fact be generalized to arbitrary branching program or log space computation. And, and then we had this very surprising result and, and, and really one, one, uh, one, uh, one aspect of coolness is that um, 
it sort of turned the table. So it took something that we viewed as a barrier telling us, no, this is too good to be true because it will give us succinct, secure computation. And then we had it as an application. That, hey, now we can take this homomorphic secret sharing primitive and use it to build succinct, secure two-party computation protocols in the two-party setting without uh, these two external servers. So it was really unexpected for us, and it led, uh, in some sense, to, to a long and successful line of works. It also includes this notion of uh, pseudo-random correlation generators and silent oblivious transfers that I mentioned. Yuval, thank you for spending the time with us. This was uh, incredibly interesting and educational.